Welcome to Navara Live. It's Easter Monday. If you've been enjoying your bank holiday off, congratulations. This is not, though, um, a call for sympathy. There is, there is no way I would prefer to spend my bank holiday Monday than speaking to you guys on YouTube. Um, an especially exciting show today because we have a debut from Mike Bancole, lecturer in politics at Royal Holloway University. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to be here. Uh, is this the first time that there have been two Michaels on the Navarra Media Show? You know what? I can't think of many others. I think we would have had Michael Segalov a few, like a, a while back. I'm sure some more will come to us. Um, but I think it's the first time I've had a co-host with the same name, which is why I'm, 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 I'm pleased you go for Mike instead of Michael. Um, otherwise, it would be too confusing for me. Um, big stories tonight. Um, we're talking about the, the ongoing row, the storm um, about Labour's ad about Rishi Sunak. My suspicion is they're very pleased this story is continuing, but it does raise some serious issues. So we are going to discuss it as well. A new report on racism in Britain, Elon Musk and the BBC falling out um, and private schools. Should we feel sorry for people who go to them, for people who run them? Um, they certainly feel like they are being discriminated against. That's according to one call to LBC and a bunch of articles in The Telegraph this weekend. Public service announcement. Before we get going, we should mention that you'll no longer find this show as part of the Nobara Media main feed on podcast platforms. So that's because this show now has its own dedicated podcast feed. The link for that is in the description below. If you only ever watch us on YouTube, you can ignore that public service announcement. But if you sometimes listen to us on the podcast, you need to sign up um, and subscribe to Navara Live. Let's go straight on to our first story. Labour's tweet about Rishi Sunak and child sex offenders has caused a weekend-long row. And we'll take you through it blow by blow. But first off, let's remind you of the controversial ad in question. So it's a picture of Rishi Sunak. Do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. And then it says, under the Tories, 4,500 adults convicted of sexually assaulting children under 16 serve no prison time. Labour will lock up dangerous child abusers. Now, we're not going to talk too long about the ad itself because we did that extensively on Friday. But let's talk about the fallout since that was put out. As we talked about then, it was condemned by MPs like John McDonnell and a fair few journalists and it did at one point seem as if Labour were rolling back on the ad, that they were having second thoughts. That was because The Guardian reported on Saturday that Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper was not told about the attack ad in advance. They also spoke to a source who said Keir Starmer wouldn't sign off individual graphics. So it seems like they're, they're distancing themselves from responsibility. It also was then the case that some Blairite hardliners, so people normally on Starmer's side, came out against the ad. That included David Blunkett, a Home Secretary under New Labour. He wrote in the mail that Labour should be better than resorting to gutter politics. David Blunkett was a pretty authoritarian um, Home Secretary. He's not known as someone who doesn't like to take low blows or sound tough on crime. So that was a significant intervention. Then, though, um, the counterattack began. James Heal works at The Spectator. Um, so he tweeted this, Labour insider the mail on Sunday on Yvette Cooper's lack of support for that crime act at, quote, this is a quote from a Labour source or Labour insider, sheer cowardice from a serial failure who should have left frontline politics long ago. If Yvette disagrees so strongly with pointing out the Tories' dismal record on crime, she knows where the door is. Um, we've also seen today the sort of briefings that she might be moved out of her position as Shadow Home Secretary, suggestions um, that Steve Reid or Wes Streeting could be moved in. You wouldn't have guessed during Keir Starmer's campaign that he was going to be too right-wing for Yvette Cooper. Now, Yvette Cooper is seen as um, someone on the loony left, 
um, who's got a uh, fear for her job. After these briefings about Yvette Cooper, then came Keir Starmer writing his own piece for the Daily Mail. The headline declared this, Sir Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak and the Tories have let criminals get away with it. I stand by every word Labour has said, no matter how squeamish they may feel. So he's saying he's properly doubling down on that ad. And in the piece, he wrote this, as a former director of public prosecutions, my life's work has been about making our country safer and more secure, building a better Britain for families everywhere. But over the last decade, we have become a country where thugs, gangs, and monsters mock our justice system and make decent people's lives a misery. So thugs, gangs, and monsters. Um, so he's really nailing his flag to the mask. To the mast there. Um, he has a solution. It's this. My answer has been to make Labour the party of law and order. Once again, we will choose a different path to the Tories reforming police contracting so we can have 13,000 more police and PCSOs on our streets and removing bureaucracy so we have more prosecutors working to clear the backlog in our courts. You can see there, he doesn't want to talk about more money. He wants to talk about more reforms. And he says, we will increase minimum sentences for rapists and stalkers and create a law to tackle those who harass women on our streets. We will make it our mission to halve the levels of violence against women and girls. Labour will have zero tolerance for crime, but it will also have zero tolerance for those who tolerate crime. Now, my question here, if you were really serious about crime, you would also have zero tolerance for people who tolerate people who tolerate crime. You, you, you can't do this by halves. Uh, I mean, it, it sounds funny. It sounds ridiculous. I do actually think this is quite serious and quite worrying because we've also heard this, you know, we've heard this formulation from Keir Starmer before, especially when it came to anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So what he said, we're going to be tough on anti-Semites and we're going to be tough on people who questioned the extent of anti-Semitism in the party. And what that meant was that if you questioned the contents of the EHRC report, if you questioned the idea that anti-Semitism in Labour was absolutely rampant and it was a total disgrace, then you are by proxy anti-Semite. And now he seems to be suggesting, if you question Keir Starmer's message on crime, you yourself are by proxy a criminal or soft on crime, right? So that to me seems incredibly, incredibly worrying. I think it just reveals a lot about Keir Starmer and Labour's stance on issues when it comes to law and order. So they, they, they are taking this really authoritarian stance in law and order. It's like this really hyperbolic messaging of like thugs running rampant on the streets of Britain. And look, this is not me trying to downplay the issues of violent crime in Britain. Of course, there are issues of crime in Britain. But I think Labour's messaging is out of sync of people's lived realities. What people are experiencing actually and why crime has risen and there's lots of evidence for this, is that austerity, years and years of conservative austerity, has led to the underfunding of key services, public services, and has left them inadequate when it comes to addressing, you know, crime and, and, and injustice that might happen on, on our streets. Now, the reason Labour can't adopt a really hard line or an anti-austerity line is because Labour in the last few months has tried to position themselves as the party of, you know, financial prudence. You know, we're going to look after your money, we're not going to waste your money. You don't have to be, you can be anti-austerity and also financially prudent. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And Labour will be better suited, I think, focusing their messaging around an anti-austerity lens of look at what the Conservatives have done to our public services, you know, cuts to youth services. These things have led to an increase in crime. Here's what Labour are going to do to make things better. Focusing on a progressive vision for Britain that focuses on funding our public services because people in Britain care deeply about our public services. They would like our public services to be looked after better by the government. So I think, you know, Labour are missing an open goal here by focusing their message on this kind of hyperbolic language that feels totally out of sync with the lived experiences of so many in Britain. In that article, Starmer also 
sort of tried to brandish his record as director of public prosecutions. He seems to think this will make him seem even tougher on crime than any uh, comment piece in the Daily Mail or ad on Twitter might be able to do. This does seem to be double-edged, though. It might backfire because Keir Starmer's record as director of public prosecutions was brought up this morning by Justin Webb speaking to Emily Formbury on Radio 4. What the sentencing guidelines suggest is that not all child sex abusers should get an automatic prison sentence. Those are the sentencing guidelines set down by mm. the relevant institution, the Sentencing Council. Yes. Sakir Starmer was a member of that institution when it set down those guidelines. Did he object at the time? The, there is a proactive role that Parliament can take. Did which he is object that, at the time? I wasn't in the meeting and I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I know that he was on well, sentencing guidance, guidance yeah, so at, because it was well, set, it was, it was set up in... Twi- yeah, yeah, so he was on it in 2012 when they came up with precisely the guidelines that you are now objecting to that allow some sex offenders of children not to go to prison. Those were passed in 2012. And in what circumstances? And in what circumstances? But those guidelines were passed by Keir Starmer. And I'm just wondering whether at the time they were passed by a sentencing council of which he was a member, did he object? I mean, it's a reasonable question, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know the details of it. Otherwise, I would answer it. Now, that just seems very unconvincing to me. I mean, it, it, it seems from that that Keir Starmer probably has more responsibility for the sentencing guidelines than Rishi Sunak does. Rishi Sunak was never on a sentencing board. When Keir Starmer was director of public prosecutions, he actually had quite a lot to do with sentencing guidelines. I also think it's a bit dangerous the way this conversation is going, because obviously people who sexually assault children, should, you know, th- th- they shouldn't get off lightly. But I do worry about what this 4,500 number that Labour are talking about includes. So if that includes a 17-year-old who was with a 15-year-old and it was, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, I think that would be statutory rape, but you can see a scenario where that could be, you know, by some degree, it's problematic because you see by some degree where that could be consensual and that shouldn't lead to someone going to prison as a completely different situation to uh, an adult who's grooming a child. The only answer I think that Labour will have if they're seriously saying everyone involved in any kind of child sexual abuse of children has to go to prison is a minimum sentence, a minimum minimum prison sentence for anyone involved in this kind of thing. And if that ends up with 17-year-olds going to prison because they had a 15-year-old girlfriend, I mean, that would would seem worrying to me. I feel like this conversation hasn't really gone enough into the details of why the sentencing guidelines were as they were, other than just pointing a finger at a politician and saying, this politician is soft on pedos which, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of respect for Rishi Sunak, but I think the explanation for why the sentencing guidelines are as they are is probably not that he's soft on pedos, right? I think there's probably something else going on. Emily Formby's answers on Sky were a little more convincing. Do you stand by the answers as well, Ms Thornbury? Good morning. Happy Easter. Good morning. Happy Easter, Kay. Um, of course we do. Of course we do. Why would we not? Listen, the criminal justice system in this country has completely collapsed. And it's happened over the 13 years that the Conservatives have been in power. And Rishi Sunak is in charge of the government and should do something about it and isn't. Because I suppose one of the reasons that people are being so squeamish about it, and you know there's been quite the backlash uh, on Twitter and other social media, is the suggestion that the Prime Minister doesn't want to put sex offenders in jail. And he takes very much exception to that. Well... Let's put it this way, if if it's such a priority for him, then why doesn't he do something about it? Which means, why doesn't he make sure that the Attorney General puts proper, there's something called an unduly lenient sentences regime, 
where if something, if someone has been given a sentence which people feel is too low, then it can be referred to the Attorney General and then she makes a decision about sending it to the Court of Appeal so the Court of Appeal can have another look at it. And frankly, under Suella Braverman, um, for the two years that she was Attorney General, it, hardly anyone was sent um, who was a child sex abuser or um, or a child pornographer were were sent to were sent to the attorney, to the court of appeal to be to have their sentence looked at again. It is but, disgraceful. On top of that, the Lord Chief Justice has had to advise judges that, given how overcrowded our prisons are, that the judges should think should think again before sending someone to prison. Um, we've heard we've heard from barristers saying that people are less likely to be sent to prison because of the amount of time that it takes between the original offence and someone coming before the courts. I mean, if you are an alleged rapist, you, know, you have a 2% chance of actually being charged if, an, if a, a, uh, someone complains about you, um, a 2% chance of coming to court, and then it's a three-year wait for the case to come to court. I mean, this simply isn't right. And as Keir says in his article today, you know, what does that say to the brave women who come forward to make these complaints? It says that, that we're not taking this matter seriously. I mean, I can tell you Labour is, but this government is not taking this matter seriously and doesn't really care. If they cared, they would do something about it. I'm not sure how seriously Labour takes it if they're using it to, you know, put out incredibly misleading ads on Facebook or on Twitter or wherever, just saying Rishi Sunak doesn't want to send child sex abusers to prison. Which I, I mean, we've, we've, we've discussed on Friday how that is misleading. There were, though, some points in there which I do think point to where Labour does have a reasonable critique of, of, of the Tory party and where it is, you know, they can make out that they're tough on crime. And that's not to say that, oh, there are all these nonce apologists who aren't giving out tough enough sentences. It's that the police are terrible at investigating Rape allegations are terrible at investigating child sexual abuse allegations as well. It's 2% of rape allegations end in a charge. It's 10% of child sex abuse allegations end in a charge. So there's clearly something going incredibly wrong there. I think she was also correct to talk about the, the time it is taking between a charge or a crime being committed and when it gets heard in court. So there is often a, a free four-year wait between a, a crime was committed and there is that outcome. Now, a couple of obvious problems with that. So one, that's going to be incredibly dis dis distressing for the victim. And two, she's right, it does mean that the judge will often sort of say, well, four years have passed, you're a bit of a changed person since when that crime was committed. So we're going to give you a more lenient sentence. The example of the incident in Scotland, where there was a horrific um, circumstance of a 17 year old in a park raping a 13 year old who then didn't get a um, custodial sentence, the judge in there explanation of why a custodial sentence was not given said that they haven't committed any crimes in the four years between the crime being committed and the judgment or the sentence being um, deployed or being decided upon. So, you know, I feel like there are some legitimate criticisms here that, that can make Labour seem tough on crime. And I really don't mind Labour talking about crime. But I think if they do, it should be based in reality, not based on fear mongering about monsters and nonce apologists in the ruling class, because that does take us down some fairly dangerous routes, especially if it's not based in reality. Obviously, if it's, if it's well evidenced and based in reality, if Rishi Sunak genuinely did think um, that it was a great thing to let load of child rapists get away with it, then that would be a problem. But we don't have evidence that that's the case. So it makes me think that Labour aren't particularly serious about fixing a problem if they are quite openly misidentifying it. Mike, what's your take on sort of Emily Formbury's argument there? And, and do you think there could be a sort of tough on crime uh, pitch that the Labour Party could make that wouldn't be as misleading and reactionary as the one they've gone for? 
they definitely can make a more compelling pitch about crime. Look, people don't want their streets to be ridden with crime. They want they want criminals to be punished and 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 face the repercussions of their crime. But Labour needs to be careful about making this a personal issue, especially given Keir Starmer's previous role, because if it becomes a heated this, heated that type of thing. Well, then conservatives can be well within their rights to look at Keir Starmer's record when he was arrested for public prosecutions. So I think they should be very careful about this. And, and Labour have justified their dirty tactics as like, a, well, look, the conservatives do this too. Why can't we be dirty? But I think it's important for Labour to understand where they are. Labour are doing well in the polls. So Labour don't have to compete on the terms of their opponents at the moment. Yes, the government of the day do control the story to some extent. Well, you can push back and control the narrative, given that you are the party that are leading in the polls. You are the party that many expect to form the next government. You don't have to resort to the tactics of, of, the, of the government of the day. You can be a bit smarter. So Labour would actually be better suited about, yes, talking about crime, but diagnosing the issue in, in more effective ways. Thinking about, look, we have issues with policing when it comes to investigating rape. Why is that the case? Telling that story a bit more convincing, even just saying it's all Richard Sunak's fault. I mean, blaming him for things that happened when he wasn't even a, an MP just sounds completely ridiculous. So I think Labour can be a lot smarter than they currently are being. And, and it, it kind of to use a football analogy here, because Labour consistently competes in the terms of their opponents. I think another issue is, is immigration, right? So with immigration, when it comes to Rwanda policy, instead of pushing back and saying this policy lacks compassion, they're focused on the on the efficiency of it. Well, it's not efficient. So Labour consistently on so many issues competes on the terms of their opponents. And it's like when you're playing against Manchester City, if for football fans who may be tuning in, Manchester City dominate the possession, they dominate the ball. And if you just sit back and just defend and let them control the game, that's not going to work well. They're probably going to score a few goals. So there needs to be a time at which you control the agenda in the game and, and impose your style. And I think Labour are in a position now where they can impose particular things on the, on, on, on the Conservative Party in terms of shifting the debate in particular ways and telling a more convincing and compelling story. My concern with this, this policy, is, is that one, it is putting a kind of reactionary idea up the political agenda, which is to say there are a bunch of monsters around and all we need to do is send them to prison for longer which I don't think is a particularly, you know, there, are, there probably are some people who need to go to prison for longer, but I don't think that's a particularly good analysis of why people are getting away with, well, especially sexual assault and sexual abuse and child sexual abuse. I, I don't think the problem is simply that we're not sending people into jail for long enough. The problem to me seems to be much more deep and complex than that. So I don't think Labour are being particularly serious about this. And there are obviously, I mean, we know all the dangers that come with stoking up moral panics about crime, right? It ends up with fairly authoritarian policing policies and you end up targeting people who shouldn't be targeted. So so for me, there is a real sort of policy problem here. I think though, from an electoral perspective, Keir Starmer's team are going to be over the moon that this has been dominating the headlines for four days. And this is precisely why I think they said something which was openly misleading, because unless you say something which is openly misleading, it doesn't move beyond Twitter and it doesn't make headlines. So I think the fact that it's a, bit, it's a bit like the 350 million on the side of a bus, right? Dominic Cummings said this. He said, yeah, it wasn't quite true, but it was so good for them to be having a conversation dominating the headlines, which is, do we give 150 million pounds to the EU over for the NHS or do we give 350 million pounds to the EU over the NHS? Now they're just thinking, all people are hearing is we give money to the EU for the NHS. And they think that was very helpful for their campaign. In this case, you've got a big argument. Was Rishi Sunak responsible for a bunch of child rapists not going to jail? Or was it the Tory party who were responsible for a bunch of child rapists not going to jail? Now, from a Labour strategist perspective, that's good for you. So they'll be very pleased with all the headlines they've seen this, this weekend. The question is, was it worth it, right? Was it worth getting those headlines 
which I do think are probably somewhat damaging to Rishi Sunak, if it means that you move discourse in this kind of dangerous, and I think, you know, essentially somewhat dishonest direction. Next story. Two years ago, the government published a report on racism in the UK. It was commissioned by Boris Johnson after the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. And it gave Boris Johnson the answer he wanted to hear. Britain was not institutionally racist. That was according to the government-appointed chair of the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, Tony Sewell. And the report found evidence of overt racism in British society, but denied it was structural. And for that reason, the report was widely panned by campaigners and academics on its release. The Runnymede, the Runnymede Trust sorry, even went so far as to call it, quote, frankly, disturbing. A two-year-long study from Manchester University suggests that the critics of the report were correct. The authors claim it's the largest study into racism in Britain since 1997, with over 17,000 people interviewed, and its findings are pretty shocking. The Guardian reports this. Almost one in six people from minority ethnic and religious groups said they had experienced a racist physical assault prior to the pandemic, according to the survey. This increased to more than one in five Jewish people and more than one in three gypsy traveller and Roma people. More than a quarter of all respondents from minority ethnic groups had experienced racial insults and 17% said their property had been damaged by racist attacks, it found. Nearly a third said they had experienced racism in a public place and one in six said they had suffered racism at the hands of neighbours. Those statistics were about racist actions by individuals, but what about institutional racism? The Guardian goes on to report this. Nearly a third of people from ethnic and religious minority groups reported racial discrimination in education, 29%, and employment, 29%. And nearly a fifth said they experienced discrimination when looking for housing. More than a fifth of all minorities reported experience of discrimination from the police, though this rose to 43% of black Caribbean groups and more than a third of gypsy traveller and Roma groups. Ethnic minority groups were more likely to live in overcrowded housing, 60% of Roma families were overcrowded, and a quarter of Pakistani and Arab people, and far more likely than white British people to be without access to outdoor space at home. Nissa Finney is a professor of human geography who led the study. She told The Guardian this, The UK is immeasurably far from being a racially just society. The kinds of inequality we see in our study would not be there if we had a really just society. Um, despite these problems, though, the study found that minority groups still place a lot of faith in British institutions. The Guardian reports this. Despite abundant evidence of racial discrimination and unfairness, the survey found the vast majority of minority groups reported a strong sense of belonging to British society, often alongside deep attachment to their own ethnic identity. Many groups reported high levels of trust in the UK Parliament and devolved governments. Such relatively high trust levels were especially striking during the pandemic when ethnic minorities had a higher than average chance of being infected or dying from COVID-19. With some exceptions, ethnic minority people tended to trust the UK Parliament more than white British people did, the research found. Mike, from this study, did you find anything particularly striking? What stood out to you? I think that the last thing you just read out about trust in institutions is striking to me, but I feel I can maybe be explained by, by two things. I think the first thing is things have improved when it comes to racial inequality and racial injustice. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't an issue when it comes to institutional racism. Of course there is. But things have improved from maybe the 80s where there was such violent racism, um, individual individualised racism between between maybe different groups and, and, and maybe tension between different groups on such a physical level. That's, that's definitely decreased. And, and we also look at diversity institutions. I mean, one of the things that the Black Lives Matter movement tried to raise was the idea that we need to be more diverse when it comes to key institutions. Now, I do research on the House of Commons. I look at the 
diversity in the House of Commons and what minority MPs do and what interests they represent. And what we do see is that from 1987, when we had the first four elected and they were all four Labour MPs, we now have 67 ethnic minority MPs in the House of Commons across four major parties, the SNP, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats. So that's huge progress. And we can think maybe about what these MPs do and whether it's effective to have diversity when it comes to tackling racial injustice. But I do think that will increase the sense of belonging for, with, with these institutions, with you know, British society, because we see ourselves represented in key institutions, in, 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 in politics, you know, when it comes to something like football, for example, we, the, the, the British, the England football team is so diverse. You know, so many of the star players are now black. So there is this growing sense of belonging with, with Britain. And also Brit- black British culture is becoming far more salient thanks to people like Stormzy, thanks to you know, people like Dave, who, who produce such fantastic music that resonates with people across Britain. So I do think maybe that might explain the, the, the growing trust. But look, we, we shouldn't shy away from, from the issue. And, and this report's has outlined some key issues. There, there is still an issue in Britain when it comes to institutional racism. Now, the problem with the cell reports is the cell reports try to shift focus away from the fact that institutional racism was still a problem. And when we talk about institutional racism, what we're talking about is institutions that produce negative outcomes that disproportionately affect ethnic minorities. And policing is an example of that. So we know that when it comes to stopped and searched, black people are 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched than their white counterparts. Now, this is linked to the idea that maybe black men or black people are, are innately criminal and must be you know, treated with more suspicion than other groups. So we do still see institutional racism being a problem. But I do understand maybe why there has been this growing trust in, in institutions, given the progress we have made over the last 30 years or so. The Sewell report sort of had this sort of philosophical starting point, which was to say that unequal outcomes don't necessarily mean that racism is to blame. So they would say that if black people are getting stopped in search more, that might be because knife crime is higher in um, areas where more black people live. And so therefore it's not necessary, even though there is an unequal outcome, it's not necessarily caused by racism. And they said, therefore, even though we have some unequal outcomes, this doesn't show that structural racism exists then more progressive people or people on the left tend to say, if you've got these unequal outcomes, that means that there must be some discrimination going on. So could I just get you to sort of, I suppose, talk about that debate a little bit and maybe sort of elucidate that for our for our audience somewhat, the difference between sort of th- th- these analyses that say structural racism exists and these analyses that say, well, unless you can prove that there was an individual sort of incident of discrimination, then you can't really talk about racism being an explanatory factor here. I think it's an interesting debate, and I think that there is this left and right issue when it comes to how we view racism. So I think on the right, what tends to happen are there are two competing trends here. There's this, well, not competing trends, but these two trends on the right. So the right tried to frame this as we live in a post-racial society, and because there's been this loads of progress, institutional racism no longer exists, and it's no longer a problem. When we see institutions continuously produce outcomes that disadvantage particular groups, and we're talking about stop and search as one, when it comes to housing, and this is a, this, this is a statistic that comes from the government's own racist priority audit, it found that you know Asian families were more likely to live in, in, in poverty and deprivation, for example. So when we see these disproportionately negative outcomes across so many different sectors, that's how we can point to the existence of racial, racial injustice and institutional racism, because these institutions are operating in a way that produces these negative outcomes. Now, often when we when we speak about negative outcomes, you know, it can be put down to the idea of it's just, just a bad apple, or it's just a, you know, just this one person. If we, if we if we kick out all the baddies, it will be fine. But actually, I think we need to change the way in which institutions operate. So, stop and search is inherently a racist policy because it kind of comes derives from the sus laws, which are again racist. 
So all of this, the way in which institutions operate, the kind of tactics they use, all of these tactics are inherently racialized. That's, probably, that's why we talk about the existence of, of, of institutional racism. So it's about the way in which these institutions operate and how these, 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 these kind of different mechanisms, these different ways to operate can produce negative outcomes that always disproportionately neg- negatively affect racial minorities in Britain. I suppose the argument is that, you know, if if it had been a different group being disproportionately affected by this, the policy would probably have been changed by now. So you can say sort of it, it shows how um, sort of political priorities are determined by race. And you can say sort of like there's structural racism because if this had been a policy that was disproportionate, if stop and search, say, had been disproportionately affecting middle class white guys, probably they would have changed the policy. But because it's disproportionately affecting young black guys, they they haven't done. Let's go straight on to our next story. Labour under Keir Starmer has been pretty soft on the super rich, but one place where they might feel the pinch is in education. And that's because Labour have pledged to introduce VAT on fees for private schools. The head of Mayfield School for Girls, a private school, called into LBC to explain his fears if the policy goes ahead. And get your tissues ready, because this is a real sob story. I would honestly say that the majority of parents are really struggling to pay the fees. And in my 27 years as a head, we always made it possible for people who were struggling to have some kind of bursary or or scholarship uh, if their children really would benefit from an education at the school and the school would benefit from their presence. So 20% would be absolutely crucial. And I think that the majority of smaller, less well-known private schools would actually have to close or join the state sector. I mean, that's another option. But I, I think it would finish off all but the most famous headline schools, the Eaton's, Harrow's, et cetera, et cetera, which you know, have enormous endowments. But the smaller schools don't, and they, I think they would this close. Is, this is where the debate gets a little bit odd, isn't it? Because yeah. obviously it's a vote winner. If only 7% of people, and, and largely they've got money, who send their children to independent sector, if it's only 7%, you know, the 93% are going, well, who cares? So, you know, to have a, to have a proper debate about this is, is sort of difficult because if you say private or independent to somebody who doesn't have the means to send them there, they're thinking Eton. They're thinking uh, top hat and tails and a bunch of, of you, know, you, know, you know, snobs and... Um, Etc. Yeah. It's that. That's the problem. That's that's where the debate goes too quickly, doesn't it? It, it? Exactly. And to be honest, I don't even think the Conservative government um, are prepared to fight too hard on on this one because again, there's, there are no votes uh, in it in it for them. So I'm not optimistic um, about this. I think that it would be an easy win, a vote winner for Labour, uh, but I think the consequences would be dire because. Of course, they would actually then have to provide school places for the four or five hundred thousand children uh, who were no longer going to private schools. You know, so there would have to be a lot of school building, which would take time. Yeah. So I don't quite know how they would square that circle. I suspect there would be an interim phase where they put pressure on independent schools, private schools too take children um, from state schools to provide their facilities more openly to people from state schools to uh, consider mergers and that kind of thing. So I I don't think it's going to happen full stop uh, in the next 5, 10, 15 years. But I think, you know, there is an inevitability about it. Spend that clip looking up how I could buy a very, very tiny violin. People think that, uh, that we're like Eton. 
or or the, the the we're like Winchester. No, we're just a humble, ordinary private school. You know, it's not it's not easy for us. You know, it might we might be the top seven percent of people when it comes to income, wealth, and privilege, but that doesn't mean you can you, you can't bunch us up with the top one percent. No, 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 no. That would that would be almost prejudiced, right? I looked up um, how much the school costs that he's the head teacher for. So boarding fees, so you can be a boarder there, 12,000 a term. So if there's three terms, that'd be 36,000 pounds a year. Day fees, so if you don't board, um, 8,000 pounds a term. So 24,000 pounds a year. So this is not, oh, it's just hardworking, lower middle class who are trying to get their kids ahead. No, you, you, you're going to have to be relatively wealthy to send your kids there. So if, you know, lo and behold, those kids have to go to state school, like the rest of us, like 93% of the country, I, I do not care. I, sorry, I do not care. Actually, I think it would be an actively good thing, right? Because he's talking there about, oh, that means you might have to put some extra money into the state sector. What it means to have sort of integrated education is that you have lots of different classes together, classes as in, you know, social, social backgrounds, not classroom classes. And that I think probably makes it easier to teach, right? Because kids come with a lot of social capital. If you have a school where everyone there is from a poor background where the kids, where the parents didn't go to university, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, there are a lot of good schools that make the kids achieve anyway, but it's easier if you've got a lot of social capital in that school for the kids to succeed. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing if these schools close down and people have to use normal schools. Also, because these are the people who are most likely to have like tax refunds and say, oh, I can't be bothered to pay more tax for education. If their kids went to normal schools and they saw the effect of cuts, then they might be less inclined to vote conservative at the next election. Right. So I think the idea, we see it with the NHS, the idea that everyone uses the same service tends to be a very good thing. So I don't think it, it makes much sense to say, oh, well, then, you know, actually, private schools do a good thing for everyone else because they take these kids away from state education and we fund them privately so the taxpayer saves some money. No, what you do is you create a situation where you have incredibly privileged people all sort of cordoned off in this space so they can say F you to the rest of society. And then you end up with disproportionately poorer people in, in, in state schools, which makes it slightly harder um, to make that an academically successful school. It's an interesting issue for myself to talk about, given that I, I was, you know, full disclaimer here, I was privately educated. So I am reaping the rewards of someone who was, who was privately educated. But look, I think as someone who's from West African heritage, you know, part of the reason my parents sent me to a private school is because, you know, they valued that as, a, as an important route to it for a good life. You know, they place such an importance on receiving a high quality education as, as people who've come to this country, they want the best for their children. That's perhaps the problem, right? It shouldn't be that we have to pay for, you know, a quote-unquote high-quality education. It should be available to anyone, no matter their background, no matter their socioeconomic status. So I do find it funny that, you know, these kind of private school headmasters and people on the right who, you know, most of them went to private schools as well. I do find it funny, but there's kind of moral panic about private schools. Oh, where is me? You know, private schools, you know, are in trouble. We, we face some big issues. I think actually, no. You know, only 7% of people in this country, as you mentioned, Michael, attend a private school. Yet so many of these people dominate such important and influential roles in our, in our society. Let's look at our politics. There have been 20 prime ministers who attended Eton. How can one school have such monopoly on the most important position in this country? That's completely unfair. We look at the media as well. So many journalists, so many people involved in our media who hold the government to account. So many of them attended private schools. So many of them attended, you know, Oxbridge and Cambridge. Where is this real pipeline, this kind of 
old boys club in, in our society and it's, some, it's important to be addressed and I think for Labour maybe who's speaking about ending the charitable status of private schools that's a good first step but we need to move to a world where private schools no longer need to exist right so you know we take away the advantages that private schools enjoy we, we fund public schools and we, and we make it you know more attractive to go to a public school because you believe you can receive a high quality of education there and ultimately abolishing private private schools for me is, is, is an incremental thing where we move slowly towards a, a world where they're no longer necessary and it becomes kind of the natural order of the day to abolish private schools, abolish private schools. I don't want to pry too much into sort of like intrafamilial conversations, but I mean, have, I'm just interested, um, you know, have you had this kind of conversation with your parents? Because obviously you now have come to a position where you sound quite anti-private school. You were sent to a private school. I mean, uh, I, I mean, probably quite wonky to have spoken to them about if VAT were added, what would have happened? But do you know what their, what were their attitudes? What were their explanation for, for sending you to a private school? I guess the explanation, and I think a lot of, you know, I, I know lots of people from my background, Black British people who went to private schools. The explanation was, we want to set you up in the best possible way we can for, for a good life. And we know that you as a black man will face particular barriers in life. So we want to give you the best quality of education. The education was, is, is viewed by, by West African families, by Caribbean families, as an important vehicle for social mobility. So for me, it was, you know, I didn't have a choice. It wasn't like I was shouting as a, as a first 13 year old, yeah, hey, I want to go to private school. Please send me to private school. It's more, you know, my parents explained it to me as, as being really important for social mobility. And, 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 I, and I understood what they were saying. I understood that, you know, private schools were this kind of prestigious place where people who have loads of money send their kids and their kids receive a high quality of education. They get, get involved in some extracurricular activities as well. And, and I understand that I, I have enjoyed the benefits of, of, of that education and of that background. But again, it goes back to my point. So I think it's just important that we think about the bigger picture here. And the bigger picture here is that you shouldn't be have access to a high quality education based on your background. I think we shouldn't live in a society where people come from, you know, less privileged backgrounds and, and all of a sudden have to settle for a lesser quality of education. I think a good quality of education, an exceptional quality of education should be available for all. And what the teacher strikes have really reveals to us is that there are real problems in our in teaching and education, in state education. And it's important that the government, I don't think they will, of course, but maybe the Labour Party might, it's important that whoever forms the next government or, or this government really do take a look at state education and try and look at ways in which we can improve education for all in this country. So just to clarify why that conversation was happening on LBC this weekend, Labour made their VAT announcement a long time ago. They keep touting it as how they're going to pay for various things. Um, that conversation this weekend was prompted by a survey by the Independent Schools Council. Who did a, they, they surveyed a bunch of parents and found that almost 60% of them said they certainly or probably would withdraw their child from their current private school if that um, was added to their fees. I should say, I think that probably is quite loosely defined because when you go down into the data, it's, it's a, a much smaller proportion of that who say they actually would. I think, obviously, if you say, would you be more likely to move your kid out of school if that was added? Obviously, you're going to say yes. Um, would actually that many people leave? It's unsure. Despite this attack, though, from Labour, obviously, as you heard in that interview, that head teacher was feeling very hard done by. Private school kids do not have a tough time in Britain. Um, so as Mike was just suggesting there, they are overrepresented in a lot of professions. So despite representing only 7% of the population, they get a lot of the best jobs. Now, these are the results of a 2019 study by the Sutton Trust of senior judges. 65% went to private school, so that's compared to 7% of the population. Um, civil service permanent secretaries, it's 59. Members of the House of Lords, it's 57. Diplomats, it's 52. Newspaper columnists, it's 44, which might explain a lot. Top actors, it's 44, which is interesting. 
England men's cricket team is 43. Cabinet members, 39. This is percent. Uh, male international rugby players, 37%. Pop stars, 30%. So pop stars overrepresented as well. And male international footballers, 5%. So the only group there who are underrepresented. Mike, I suppose, sort of very briefly on this question, you're a black guy who went to private school. So on, on one level, you're underrepresented in institutions like academia where you currently work. On another level, you're probably overrepresented in institutions where you work like academia. I mean, how do you how do you navigate that? Or you just think that we can't really think too much about our own personal characteristics when it comes to the the jobs we get? It's an interesting one. Again, I am conscious of my privilege. And I'm conscious that because I attended a private school, I'm in a position I am, I am today. And it's something that A, I'm grateful for, but B, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's just that because I attended a private school and I, and I received a the level of education I did and I, and I had exposure to particular things in terms of social, extracurricular activities, it means I have access to, you know, particular universities and then I was able to do a PhD, all of those things. So I actually think what we need to do in Britain is focus on making this a fairer and more equitable society. It shouldn't be fair that, you know, media is dominated by people who attended particular private schools or, or you know, you know, even professions like acting are dominated by, by people and, and academia as well. I'm, I'm fully aware of academia is, is dominated by people who, who attended private school so I think for me and and, and I've become actually become quite passionate and, and a vocal critic of, of private schools um, myself having attended one is that we need to do a better job of making education fairer for all and better for all that's that's the focus for me our final story of the evening Elon Musk and the BBC haven't had the best of relationships last month Elon attacked the broadcaster over a panorama documentary about his Twitter takeover but now he's really wound them up that's because he's added the tag government funded media to the broadcaster's Twitter page. And the BBC doesn't like it at all. They have written to Musk saying this, we are speaking to Twitter to resolve this issue as soon as possible. The BBC is and always has been independent. We are funded by the British public through the licence fee. Um, Elon Musk has responded as follows. It's politer than usual for the man. Um, we are aiming for maximum transparency and accuracy, he says. Linking to ownership and source of funds probably makes sense. I do think media organisations should be self-aware, not falsely claim the complete absence of bias. All organisations have bias, some obviously much more than others. I should note that I follow BBC News on Twitter because I think it is among the least biased. Um, it's interesting Elon Musk mentions BBC News there. That's because that Twitter account doesn't contain um, the government-funded media tag, nor does BBC Politics, BBC World News, or the Today programme. So they would actually seem like more relevant sort of channels to put that on than just for the entertainment programmes. Because the whole point of saying government-funded is to say, you might want to question whether or not this channel has some bias towards the government, right? So obviously, the reason the BBC are very upset is because like, no, we're not like Russia Today. We're not like... Um, Chinese TV channels. We are independent. We're we're not just lackeys of of governments like in these other countries outside of the West. Um, we've seen lots of that all over the media today. They're very very upset to be lumped in the same category as the likes of Russia Today. And I think on some on some grounds, fine. Um, I think the BBC probably is a lot more independent than Russia Today. But I do think this argument has been taken too far because essentially people are saying it's not government funded because it's funded by the license fee. So it's publicly funded but it's not government funded because it doesn't come out of the general government tax you know it doesn't come out of general taxation it's a hypothecated tax essentially but for me you know this is a bit weak because who sets the license fee it's the government who enforces the law that means the license fee can be collected it's the government um who determines the amount of the grant which goes to the bbc it's the government and what we see is that this does have significant effects over the BBC. So the BBC 
everyone working at the BBC, you know, especially people higher up in the BBC, they know that the future of that organization is based on the consent of the government of the day. And that does mean, you know, as we talk about often on this show, that they end up showing a bias towards the government and towards the establishment because they don't have independence. If they were, you know, I think a good reform that Labour could make at the BBC is to say, let's give it a 50-year charter where its income is guaranteed, where the government has absolutely no sway over the organisation because it's, you know, it's, it's out of their control. It's genuinely independent. But if you have every 10 years new charters where the government is deciding on whether there will be a licence fee, how much the licence fee will be, that's when you see the kind of bias we do. So I think all of this sort of Oh, how could he possibly have called this government-funded media? It's nothing like Russia Today. It's it's a completely different concept. It's publicly funded. I don't really buy it, frankly. And the BBC also doesn't act like a very independent organisation. Its chairman, Richard Sharp, was appointed to the role by Boris Johnson in February 2021. And that was after Sharp allegedly helped to organise an £800,000 loan for the former Prime Minister. If that was in Russia or China, what would we be saying? Its Director General Tim Davey also once stood as a Tory councillor. And it was Davey that suspended Gary Lineker from his show for writing a tweet critical of the government. And that influence of government over the BBC is nothing new. From its earliest days until the mid-1990s, MI5, so the Secret Service, was involved in vetting applicants for jobs at the broadcaster to weed out dissidents. That's the fact that BBC reported itself to its credit, though not until 2018. So in 2018, the BBC reported this. From the start, the BBC undertook not to reveal the role of the security service or the fact of vetting itself. On one level, this made sense, bearing in mind that the very existence of the secret service remained a secret until the 1989 Security Service Act. Over the years, some BBC executives worried about the deceptive statements they had to make even to an inquisitive MP on one occasion. But when MI5 suggested scaling back the number of jobs subject to vetting, the BBC argued against such a move. Though there were some opponents of vetting within the corporation, they had little influence until the Cold War began to fall in the 1980s. Now, this is the really interesting bit. The BBC still won't say whether the security services are still involved in vetting. And that's because they say, quote, we do not comment on security issues, um, or they only do when it's in the distant past. Um, it's not just the BBC that's been labelled as a government-funded media source. America's National Public Radio, NPR, has been landed with the tag too. According to that broadcaster, it receives less than 1% of its funding from the government, and so probably has more claim to be uh, opposed to this Musk move. Um, interestingly, NPR has vowed not to tweet from the account while the label remains. So essentially, I suppose, a bit of a Twitter boycott. So saying, while we have that um, label, we shall not tweet on Twitter. Um, BBC didn't play um, such hardball with Elon Musk. Um, Mike, where do you stand on this? Bit of big row over the weekend. Are you on Team Musk that this is government-funded media? Or are you on Team BBC that actually that understates the extent to which they are independent of any government of the day? I'm actually, for the, the first time in my life, probably, I'm, I'm Team Elon Musk here because I think the BBC have a constitutional issue, right, in that they frame themselves and claim to be a public service and, and, and theoretically they are of course they're funded by the public to some extent but their survival does depend on the government of the day so we've seen this this bbc be docile to the government of the day to this particular government with the gary lineker issue for example gary lineker tweeted something that's very critical of the conservatives kind of landmark policy on migration as a result of it people in the bbc got a bit touchy and he was you know forced to kind of stand down from presenting match today that weekend now, would Gary Lineker have been forced to step down if he said something that was 
you know, Paris in the government line maybe of, yes, we should send more migrants to, to, to Rwanda. Maybe go send them to Uganda as well while we're at it. I highly doubt he would have been suspended. So I think it's hard for the government to kind of, or the BBC, sorry, to maybe say, no, we're, we're independent. We, we don't answer the government of the day when, A, there's a constitutional issue where they are relying on the government of, of the day and, and you know, the chairman is appointed by the government of the day. And, and also there is this idea that they, they have so many times in recent years been quite docile to the government of the day and very worried about upsetting the government of the day. Yes, I, I mean, my position, if, if you really want to get that tag taken off, now I should say, I, don't, I, I also don't have much confidence in Elon Musk's sort of ability to determine what is and what isn't a government-funded media. It does seem ridiculous that the BBC has this tag and BBC Politics and BBC News does it. And BBC World, in fact, because actually that is, BBC World is more directly funded by the government. There's a, you know, the BBC is indirectly funded by the government, the BBC, you know, that we see in the UK. The BBC World Service is actually directly funded by a government grant. So you could... You, you know, you'd be even more banged to rights to call that government-funded media, but he hasn't because it seems fairly arbitrary what's going on at Twitter at the moment. Um, on that theme uh, about what's going on at Twitter at the moment, I want to show you, uh, I suppose, a funny fact that emerged while researching this story. It gives you some insight into what's going on inside Twitter right now and also into Elon Musk's view of the media. In their story on the dispute between the BBC and Musk, The Telegraph reports this. The Telegraph has contacted Twitter for comment. However... Mr. Musk has slimmed down the network's communications with press over recent month. Emails to its press office are now automatically responded to with a poo emoji. Um, Mike, what do we think of this? Should we replace all PR departments with just someone who sends poo emojis to anyone asking for comment? Perhaps that might be an effective way of dealing with questions we don't like on Twitter. Just send a poo emoji. <laughs> it seems like a, an effective response given the, the current nature of our discourse these days. Why not? Mm. It would also lead to a lot of, you know, I don't, I don't, the comms departments are often not the most sympathetic of, of, of people. I think if all of these Labour Party sources that we've been quoting today had just sent a poo emoji, it would probably be just as informative as what they actually fed to friendly journalists. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's been a pleasure having you on for the first time on Navarra Live. It's been lovely. It's uh, good to have a double mic episode today and, and hoping for another one sometime soon. For another double mic, a double mic session. Um, thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.